Welcome to the Ogilvy Podcast, featuring expert conversations and analysis on the complexities of culture, technology, business, and marketing. Ogilvy is a creative network making brands matter across 132 offices in 83 countries. I'm Steve Mudd, marketing strategist, talking to you today from our office in Denver, Colorado. Companies across every industry are sweeping aside old processes and tools in favor of digitally enhanced experiences that improve efficiency and deliver better results. The often unspoken result of this wave of digital transformation is that machines are taking over many of the tasks that us humans used to do, making our lives easier but also making some workers redundant and creating higher expectations on existing workers who have to learn new skills or face eventual obsolescence. So while we focus on human-centered design in our products and applications, we often forget the broader impacts on real live humans. Today we're talking with Mike McFadden about solving the human challenges of digital transformation. Mike is the leader of the experience design discipline at Ogilvy and has seen the highs and lows of this transformation movement. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. Good. I love this topic. This is going to be a fun time. And so what is about this, this topic that intrigues you? What do you like about it? In our, in our world, we sometimes talk so much around digital transformation, digital this, apps for this, apps for that, and we do forget the fact that there are humans. Like many of these times, we're building technology, we're building software, we're rethinking experiences to actually help human life. And so um, I find it fascinating that you know, we could have this topic, we could have this conversation around human interactions and the human component within this uh, equation of digital transformation. So a lot of these applications are designed to, again, make us more efficient, make, us, um, make companies you know, drive business results. Should the average worker be concerned when the company begins to embrace digital transformation that they're trying to bring in the computers to replace them? Um, you might find this is a shocking answer, but absolutely and absolutely not. <laughs> there are reasons to be concerned and then reasons to not be concerned. And let me share a little more on this. Um, th there's th The thing that you shouldn't be concerned about is just that change is coming. The fact is, is that change has always been coming. There's, there's change at every uh, moment. If we look at how Procter & Gamble operated 50 years to way, the way they operated 25 years ago to the way they're operating today, like markets evolve, processes evolve, people evolve. And so there's gonna be evolution of how organizations need to structure to be able to deliver value to clients. And so the idea that machines and um, all the quote unquote digital transformation initiatives are gonna make humans obsolete is, is, is pretty crazy. Um, I don't think anything's going away. Will, will how people work change? Absolutely. And that we have a blueprint of how work has changed. Um, if we take the time horizons of decades or even centuries, I mean, how we work today is a lot different than our parents worked and a whole heck of a lot different than our grandparents and great-grandparents. I was remembering my, my dad was a financial analyst at Coors for years and years and years. And when he started, it was Lotus 1, 2, 3. He had the Lotus spreadsheets. And I remember the moment that they switched from Lotus to Excel. And it was like a big deal to him to try to, to move along. I think that a lot of people draw a line in the sand of technology. Mm -hmm. and, and they don't want to go past that line. Um, you know, like my mom just got on Facebook. Like she's one of the last people on Facebook. So I'm, I'm curious, 
Um, how do those of us of a certain age who've drawn a line of technology um, remain you know, relevant in the workplace? How do we prepare ourselves for more dramatic transformations? Um, how do we move our line, I guess? Yeah, it's a great question. One does come down to an individual and a personal level of like, what are you resisting with this idea of technology and change and where we're drawing a line? I go, do we draw a line at home when our kid changes? Um, you know, there's some things that we don't have an option to draw a line. Like, your kid will be a teenager and then they will be a young adult and then they will be an adult. Like, you can resist that change, but there is a fact that they're gonna continue to grow. So if we take that same analogy with technology, do we really have a, an option to say, no, I'm not going to embrace this? I don't think we do. I think we do have a choice on how we approach that or how we look at the change. The other thing that I see going on is the evolution of how technology is brought to market. Um, there's a lot more thought around how do you make software and technology easy to use. And so you, you can now see people in their 70s and 80s ordering an Uber um, <laughs> or checking in to a flight online. And that's primarily been done because you've got designers and developers thinking about how do you make this as easy to use for that specific user. And so at the time from like Lotus to Excel, I mean those first versions of Excel, not necessarily as easy as intuitive to learn, mm -hmm. but as we get further and further along and just our, um, the maturity of how software is brought to life, um, I think we'll actually see a lower resistance because of the thoughtfulness done in creating these applications. I really would like my mom to use Uber. So if mom, if you're listening today, just know. Please use Uber. Please use Uber, yes. It's not that hard, I know, yeah. Um, so <clears throat> these digital transformation efforts often come from the boardroom, they come from the highest levels of the company. Um, how does that vision most effectively get translated down to the, you know, the workers who actually have to deal with these new tools? That's a great, great question. Many times, these digital transformation initiatives will be just that. We are gonna change our digital fill in the blank. We may look at new tools, we may look at streamlining processes, and that takes a lot of work and effort. That takes a lot of development hours, a lot of planning on a technology side. What's often missed in that is that people element. How do we actually change behavior? How do we communicate the changes that are gonna be taking place? And so this is oftentimes an oversight in digital transformation initiatives where you, you actually have the entire, you have all the ability and all of the competence to make the changes from a technology standpoint, but, but it, you don't, but many organizations forget to think about how this change is gonna actually affect their employees. Mm -hmm and their workforce. And so it's twofold. From a people standpoint, from an employee, we're all, well, not all, but we're employees of Ogilvy. People listening are employees of different organizations or entrepreneurs. Well, there's one element of just recognizing this change is happening and change is often messy and sometimes 
people overlook different things. And so as, thing, as, as change comes, new tools are implemented. Yeah, sometimes they haven't thought through all of the necessary communications. And so it can feel like you're in the dark when there's a big digital transformation initiative. And you're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and then on the flip, if you are sitting in a role where you are in charge of a digital transformation initiative, or any sort of big change initiative, there's an, a key component of taking a step back and going, how is this going to change our organization? Mm. How is this going to affect our people? What is the appropriate communication that needs to happen to bring people along? Because this is the one thing around technology. You can flip a switch and it just turns on. But if you're counting on people in any part of this, that's not necessarily as easy as just flipping a switch and then everyone just being there. Is it fair to say that, I mean, digital transformation is here to stay, that companies, basically all companies will be digitally transforming or, or will be digitally transformed at, at some point in the future? Uh, yes, I, I might use the term of, will every company need to continue to evolve because of the way human behavior is evolving, primarily, you know, quite a, a bit due to technology. I mean, there's more macro things going on as it relates to uh, mass uh, movement into urban areas, so that changes our workforce. How do you build buildings and create communities where you're able to attract the talent to execute on what you need to do as a corporation? Um, is that driven by technology? You could say yes. Um, it, I struggle to say it's absolutely every company is going to be digitally transformed as much as I'd say we're in a lot of change and it's a, it's a pretty complex ecosystem, mm -hmm. so we will continue to see things change. Our, the way transfer, uh, transportation changes, the way we buy products changes, and that's all I would say at the root because of technology and, and change. But in, in terms of the, the people that run your company, you know, what do you have to look for when it comes to like hiring people and building teams that are most prepared to deal with these um, digital transformation efforts or even this new digital world? There's an element of, you know, and I think the theme we're seeing through this is change. And so there's an element of what are we counting on people to do? We are counting on humans in organizations to be able to evolve and change with our organization. And so there might not be a role where you're doing the exact same task every day for 30 years anymore because that task is going to change and evolve and make it done quicker, faster. Might It might be done by a machine, and that's not a bad thing. Um, some of those tasks, it's quite fine if that's done by a machine, and then we evolve as humans to see what is that next task that we take on that, that takes a human to do. <laughs> So I, you know, I have an English degree, which is completely impractical. I'm not qualified to be doing what I'm doing, but I feel like this English degree has given me this broad flexibility to deal with a number of different issues. So in this new world, do English majors stand a better chance of success than, say, data science majors who are you know, spending all their time on computers? It's a great question and one that comes up quite a bit. Um, my point of view is, A, there's quite a few folks that say our education system's failing everyone. <laughs> so regardless yeah. of whether it's English or data science or computer science, that 
you're actually no better equipped to deal with all the change in the world than if you had no degree. And now many of those voices are coming from ones that are saying, hey, the world does need people to adapt and to create and to be entrepreneurial. And so I would say whether it's an English degree or data science degree, um, either one of those might serve you differently in the short term. I think in the long term, are we learning to be entrepreneurial? Are we learning to take risk? Are we learning to um, kind of put ourselves out there? Now, some would argue an English degree is perfect for that. You're having exposure to um, a lot of stories, analogies, ideas throughout many eras of time. So you may be able to draw upon more hmm. than someone who's just focused in one place. At the same time, we look at the workforce right now, there is a, a massive shortage of computer science um, majors. There's a, there's a shortage of UX designers. There's a shortage of certain um, roles. So those are absolutely great degrees to, to go get to get into the workforce, but I'd also go, that's gonna evolve over time as well. And so, you know, exposing yourself to new ways of thinking and quite frankly, putting yourself out there. You know, when I, when I say that, it's how do you take risk? How do you be entrepreneurial in your role, wherever that may be, whether you're, you are genuinely an entrepreneur starting your own business or whether you are, um, a marketing manager in an organization or you're an IT supervisor or you're a CMO. Do you think that the, the learning and development organizations of companies can facilitate that, can teach that? I mean, how, how does the role of learning and development change in this world? Yeah, I, the L&D role is so fascinating to me. Um, I do think it's evolving and has to, well, maybe not evolve as much as almost disrupt itself. The idea where L&D can see far enough ahead for an organization and train the entire workforce just doesn't really, doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. L&D to me seems to be a function now that it's really an enabler. Um, how do you enable and encourage people to continue to learn and develop? Um, you start to look at maybe some big um, overarching things that your organization needs but then you're also encouraging people to, to actually be learning on their own and developing themselves on their own paths. And so how can we help and encourage people to, um, to start to grow and stretch themselves? I mean, we do, it's 2018 as we record this. It's a pretty fascinating time. You can, you, we have access to almost all types of thinking and thought leadership and even Groups you can self-organize groups. You can almost take any type of learning um, tactic, and and you have access to it. And whether that's using you know Khan Academy or YouTube or uh, a couple of Google searches and finding some institutions that's published uh, some really thoughtful uh, research, um, we have access to almost everything <laughs> I haven't signed up for it yet but I love the master class yes where it's like, I, want, I want to I want to learn how to DJ from dead mouse that'll be my next career after podcasting is DJing that master class is pretty incredible it's like the <laughs> next evolution of Khan Academy now it's not just from anyone you know who's teaching you yeah, it's like pretty James Patterson is teaching you know so yeah how, and that, that's a that's a really interesting question because I, I think as, as you look at that expertise 
that who is the expert on marketing or who's the expert on you know whatever your company does and how do you elevate that in the L&D world versus just you know some basic curricula to check the box and move on right and that's where I think the change with L&D goes is it's not in every uh, organization but L&D historically many times can be a check the box have I educated X amount of people across and do they have this certification and L&D, maybe in the future, is not about how many checking the boxes, but it's how have we encouraged our entire employee base to grow in the area that they feel they need to grow, and that should be likely in collaboration with their manager and their teams that they're working in. And that, that can go across hard skills and soft skills. You, know, you may have a, the most talented engineer who needs to learn some people skills. Well, is L&D going to be able to identify that? And on the flip, you may have one of the most charismatic leaders, but actually is, you know, a really poor manager. <laughs> or, you know, fill in the blank needs to, to build these skills. And so I see L&D as being an enabler and facilitator alongside with the manager and team structure. I wonder how... I wonder if there's a world where that L&D structure could start to teach some of the things that I, you know, I learned with the English degree. Could you see L&D teaching poetry to improve somebody's perspective of the world? Or you know, I've never heard of a company doing that, but that would be kind of fascinating to see. You know, this just as you shared that in knowing both what's happening on the L&D side, but then also in the higher education and the institutional side, there's something to be said about um, some collaboration between some of the best institutions out there with the L&D organizations to go, how do we facilitate this? And it's not just a quote-unquote executive education class where you go for one week a year, but how do you really integrate these? And I don't, I haven't done a lot of research on this. I don't know who's doing that well, but I imagine that that'll be a, a very ripe place um, to see some some kind of cool change. I mean, you can imagine a place where Stanford and Honeywell's L&D team are talking about how do we create a program for our entire workforce and not where it's insulated and all to itself, but it's open. Mm -hmm. Why not have? Why can't Honeywell and uh, Stanford pull together a program that is facilitating education that you know someone at Ogilvy can handle to, mm -hmm. to, to engage with? Kind of a cool thing. That would be cool. I'd sign up for that. Yeah. <laughs> so at, at its core, um, human-centered design has this idea of empathy, the idea of being able to put yourself in you know, someone else's shoes and actually feel what they're feeling, think what they're thinking. Um, how can companies take that concept of empathy and extend it to the very process of transformation itself? That's a great question. And it's one that I believe is arguably the most important in a transformation of any sort. And I believe it's the most important to the success of an organization because that empathy, genuinely understanding what an what a employee is going through is gonna do a few things. It's gonna help you actually make decisions on how, where you need to change or pivot in your roadmap. It's also giving that individual, that group of people, your entire workforce, a voice. 
which also gives them buy-in to the change and actually enables them to, to change themselves. And so when we talk about transformation, it's both what's coming from, whether it's a technology-led transformation or there's a, a massive pivot in what's going on with your entire business, you're gonna need the workforce to pivot as well. And so I believe empathy is that, that core piece that if you're focused on understanding what that change looks like, you'll actually see the, the best outcomes as an organization. It doesn't answer the question of how does that happen? Um, empathy is something that you can't just dictate to someone and go, go feel empathetic. Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't work that way. And so I think that's the, the crux of going, how do we get organizations to actually care enough to start to take some action at building empathy? And those can be really massive programs or they can be very small programs. I mean, some of the things that have been done through the years that um, in varying degrees of success, it's as small as having office hours where the CEO is open to actually sitting down with employees and it can be as big as uh, hiring uh, consultants and uh, organizational change consultants to run massive programs to hear and be able to bubble up the insights and there's likely every organization can take somewhere in between I usually get to the point with the empathy set standpoint is do something do something yes. to understand what's going on you're not going to nail it. There's always going to be critics who say you could do more. But not doing anything is going to leave you in a bad place. In an organization, there are a number of things that we can listen to to hear how our employees are doing. You can look on LinkedIn to see how people are writing reviews about other people. You can go in the agency world to Fishbowl and see the questions that are popping up and the complaints that are popping up. You can go to Glassdoor and read what people are saying and hearing. There's, there's actually quite a few avenues where you can listen to your organization. And then even in virtual organizations, listen to the conversations going on in public Slack channels or in groups, or go to the actual water cooler in the organizations that have water coolers and kitchens and just listen. It's. I remember reading this book and the title was maybe more impactful than all of the work, but it was 7,000 Ways to Listen. And it had all these different thoughts. And it was written by a poet, so it was a little bit out there in a, in a good way, I thought. But just, you know, talking about can you listen to nature? Can you listen to color? Can you listen to all these different ways? And I think that's really true in an organization that we can listen. Um, you can learn a lot if you go walk by how people organize their desks. You can learn a lot. I by, hope not. I know, right? <laughs> well, especially when you have a move and you talk about mm -hmm. reorganizing people into different teams and starting to just, you know, try to pay attention to what's there and seeing what people celebrate and what people grieve and what people rally against. And you go, wow, this is is telling you a lot about your organization. Yeah, the move is a great opportunity because everyone has a blank slate. So you do get to you know, get a sense of not what's accumulated over time, but what, it, you know, what are those things that you're going to carry forward that you can't live without, especially when your desks are smaller. Right. Exactly. 
<laughs> you can't bring big paintings. I think there's a central element to brands as, as we've built them lately, like all new brands or brands are, are building some empathy into the brand itself or the idea of the brand. Um, but yeah, if you forget to extend that to your employees and to your people, you're, you know, you're, it's, it's a false promise. No one is actually going to believe that your brand stands for what it stands for if the people don't follow along. Right. I mean, more and more, this is extremely pertinent to us who are in professional services. Your people are your product. So as soon as your people aren't in it, your clients can feel it and it all crumbles. <laughs> With other organizations, it's maybe not as necessarily as linked people to your product. But if you look at organization, organizations like Zappos and um, that have focused so much on employee experience and that extends through the actual experience customers have with their brand. I see more and more where you, you no longer can think of employee experience and customer experience in silos. Mm -hmm. Those are tightly, tightly woven. And I think it's uh, Adobe had just brought those two together with, I'll say together by hiring one person to oversee the strategy of CX and EX together. And I think we'll see, you know, we talk about a, what's a new role that we'll see at the leadership level in organizations. Mm -hmm. I think we'll see more and more of customer experience and employee experience and those being either uh, the same individual or at least tightly aligned leaders. Your team has gone through a lot of changes, a lot of transformation. You know, I mean, Ogilvy's gone through this transformation recently. You seem to be very, very strong and empathetic with your people. What are the lessons you've learned through our, our own transformation that someone else might find valuable? There's been several. <laughs> I'm sure there'll be more to, to come. One of the biggest aha moments was you can't make anyone want to change and people are on their own journey and experience with how change is happening so you got to just realize people are embracing and experiencing the change all at different levels and capacities and it's also not just at work you know, we do spend a lot of time at work, but everyone's got lives around that. And so many times you're adding organizational change on top of whatever else is going on at home and in their life. And that can either be a tipping point that causes complete disruption in a, you know, someone's individual life, or they might have stability in some place, or they might be, you know, I'll call it focused in some other place. So the change at work doesn't affect them as much. And so one of the biggest I guess ahas through our kind of changes has just been just trying to understand where people are in their own engagement with the change. Hmm. And the other piece is just being very direct that change is happening. I found the worst thing to do to anybody is to try to shield something, trying to shield them from something that is happening. There is a exercise we did that was just called facing. Like just what is? And just having some space to talk about what is happening. Not judging it, not judging the feelings that are around that. And we went through a brand transformation. 
we had to walk through that with our leader team and our whole organization about what does it mean to lose the brand effective UI? For some, it meant, okay. For others, this was so core to their identity of who they are and where they came to work. And we still had to face the fact that we are ogly. So it's balancing having enough space to talk through what's going on and, and what's the experience there, and then still going, hey, we're, we're still going to be Ogilvy at the date that we were Ogilvy. And you have to go back and, and, of course, have all those effective UI tattoos covered up. The tattoos are all gone. Yeah. Those were painful. <laughs> we and our, expensive. We had our leopard tattoos, too. That was, that was a very expensive process. Nita led that process to get our tattoos redesigned. The Ogilvy tattoo on the back of my neck is not quite as, you know, nice on top of the effective UI. Not as much streaker. Yeah, there is that. Some people get very wrapped up in the identity of, of their, the identity of the company they work for is their identity. And so when that changes, that is a very difficult thing. Um, We've seen that a lot even within Ogilvy and the switch to one Ogilvy and watching even departments move. And you go, okay. And I remember talking to someone who was in um, a PR function, and just the minor change from Ogilvy PR to Ogilvy, that had massive change. I mean, that, there's identity with that, and that identity comes. We know we're at, you know, you're at a dinner party or you're at a, an industry event, and all of a sudden that switches, and that, that is a big change. And that can be overlooked, and I think oftentimes uh, minimized, and I think that's a critical point in the how do we build empathy as organizations is just let's not walk too far ahead where we don't stop and let people process um, letting someone process and letting someone talk through how they feel when something's changed does take a little more time I still remember someone saying I need to be able to talk this through before I can move on <laughs> For anyone who's known me for long, that was a hard thing to hear because I wanted to move. Yeah. And that's probably been the biggest leadership lesson I've taken over the last two years is that make time to listen so that people can process. And, I mean, there, there's a grief to it sometimes yeah. and you have to go through all those stages of grief. Yeah, I, I mentioned my dad, you know, he was at Coors for a long time. So he would go to the beer trailer and he could buy Coors at the beer trailer, employee prices. And then all of a sudden it became, you know, Miller, Molson, Coors, like this massive thing. And so he went his whole career bad-mouthing Miller Lite. And all of a sudden he went to the beer trailer and there's Miller Lite in the beer trailer. Um, it was a huge shift for him and you know, it took him, I don't know, some amount of time before he actually bought some Miller and brought it home. Right. But <laughs> it, it really is fascinating how th these... Who would have thought that would be a big deal? But it's an yeah. absolutely big deal, especially when we talk about consumer packaged goods and the, the competitiveness of that. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, you were my competitor. I hated you. And now <laughs> we are brothers. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, the whole hiring process is a fascinating one as the workforce evolves is you look at more and more organizations, I'll say rely on um, freelancing contract work for things where you bring in specialists. Mm -hmm. 
how do you ensure that you've got a great pool of good people that are able to join your organization quickly is a that's a that's a tough task. I mean our, our talent partners have just difficult tasks on that front. And then the flip on how do we find um, people that are gonna help move our organization further. You know, it's it's when we talk about all the changes that are ahead, we are looking for people that are not just great right now, but how are they going to help us be great in the future? Um, as many of you know, I did not join Ogilvy through applying at Ogilvy. We were acquired by Ogilvy and now we're part of the family. One of the things I've loved about learning about David Ogilvy and the culture that, that was here as he was alive and what he built was that idea of hire giants. Hire people better than you. Hire people that are smarter, better, more fun, more whatever. But the idea of going, how do we continue to uh, like put great people around us? Well, and, and now I think there was an agency culture thing where, where you would almost, you would put up with a certain level of bad behavior for those giants. And I think that aspect has changed. I think there's less tolerance of the bad behavior now so the giants that you're getting have to have empathy at the core. They right. have to be empathetic giants as well as you know, performance giants. The expectation on leadership in all different types of roles across an organization and especially in an agency has evolved and I think in a great way. As society we're putting big expectations on leaders and big expectations on our organizations. And I think that is good. It's good for business. It's good for people. And it's a, a place where I, I do believe corporations can lead well. We continue to push ourselves at demanding great things. And especially in organizations like ourselves where we're serving clients Pushing ourselves is only going to help us deliver better work for our clients, which is therefore, you know, making us relevant as time goes on. Mike, thank you very much. It's been thank a great you. conversation. Uh, well, we're glad everyone joined us today on the Ogilvy Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Mudd. Thanks again to our expert guest, Mike McFadden. Ogilvy is a creative network making brands matter across 132 offices in 83 countries. Check back with us next time and we'll discuss how the Mean Girls musical influenced the Academy's decision to introduce a most popular girls film category. 